Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Welcome, Avi. Thank you so much for joining us on Next Economy Now. Erin, I'm so thrilled to be here. So we're really big, big fans, I have to say. And the first association I <laughs> Well, it's going to be a hard-hitting interview, I can tell. <laughs> um, no, that's cool. We, the first association I had with your work is actually the movie The Take. So I thought we'd start oh, wow. there. Um, cool. For our listeners who haven't yet seen it, could you tell us a little bit about how you got started with that movie, why you did that movie, and what it's about? That's great. I mean, I, I think for this podcast, that's a great place to start, actually, because the slogan for the documentary The Take was Fire the Boss. It's a portrait of a social movement and an extraordinary new economy that emerged in Argentina after their colossal financial crash of 2001, there were uprisings, similar in many ways to to some that we're seeing today, not about racial justice, but about economic justice. And in the economic catastrophe that happened in Argentina, which was very much a creature of global finance, of Citibank writing the privatization rules, and you know other big financial institutions, hedge funds and banks, exploding a debt bomb over that country, which induced a currency crash and a capital flight, and one of the worst economic crises in modern history, certainly in modern Latin America history, which has many, unfortunately. And in the wake of that crisis, people in Argentina, which had been the strongest middle-class economy in Latin America, with a strong industrial base coming out of the from the 1920s on, and their kind of economic national project to have a strong industrial base, free college education in Argentina from the 1920s on. So there's a very powerful, strong, industrial, educated middle class. That whole economy went into free fall. And in the wake of it, there were many interesting social movements that sprang up. There were citizens' assemblies where people started meeting in parks and plazas under streetlights at night in the dozens or in the hundreds, and an explosion of direct democracy and horizontal organizing. There were barter clubs and alternative currencies. There were many social experiments as people tried to create the next economy in the moment of crisis. The most significant, in my view, was the movement of worker-run factories and businesses, this surge of cooperativism, which emerged in the context of this crisis. And the take follows a number of different struggles as workers whose wages were cut, whose health care was cut, whose pension funds were looted, as owners sucked out whatever remained of the businesses, took off to Europe, many of them to wait out the financial crisis. There were all kinds of exposés of illegal capital flight as the banks colluded with the ownership class to get their capital out of the country. There's a scene in the film of $40 billion being driven to the airport in the dead of night in bank trucks. I mean, capital flight made real, right? And a country looted, as we say in the film, not a poor country, but a country made poor. And in this rubble of the neoliberal experiment, because it really followed the 90s in Argentina, which was extreme privatization and deregulation of the economy, people were locked out of their workplaces as many businesses went bankrupt. And the owners started selling off the machines. And many of these were factories because it was a strong manufacturing economy. And workers and communities Their workplace where they'd been going to work for 30 years was still there. You know, there was a lock on the door and the machines were still inside. 
And they were owed wages and benefits that had been stripped from them over the six months to a year preceding. And so many of them started going back into their workplaces and putting those workplaces back into production. And they were legal struggles as they tried to get legal recognition. They were struggles with the bankruptcy courts. And there were huge social and psychological struggles as workers who had all worked together under a boss were suddenly sitting literally in a circle looking at each other and trying to figure out how to rebuild their lives and their businesses and their salaries and their their lives together. And they chose cooperativism as the tool. And they decided because they were so disillusioned with the way their so-called democracy at the national level had colluded with international finance to rob them of their, of their livelihood and of their economic stability, they invigorated democracy in their own lives and brought it into the workplace as an organizing principle. And so this explosion of worker co-ops in Argentina in the early 2000s, and then again after the financial global financial crisis of 2008, provoked by a debt bomb, sponsored by many of the same players and economic policies. When it went global almost a decade later, there was another wave of worker takeovers of businesses in Argentina. And this network of worker co-ops is alive to this day and continues to grow in the current triple crisis that we're facing. So The Take was my first feature documentary film. Naomi Klein, my my partner, um, we've been together as humans and also working together for the last 25 years. We were really immersed in the globalization debate of the late 90s and the movement that arose around the battle for Seattle and the WTO and the social movement challenging of those global financial institutions. And we had been hammering it out, Naomi, with her first book, No Logo. I was hosting a talk show on Canadian public television in the late 90s, where I was on air four nights a week in prime time, arguing about this moment in the late 90s of corporate globalization and the wave of movement resistance that was emerging to it. And we reached a point where we really agreed with some of our critics, which was, we knew what we were against, but we, we didn't have an alternative that we were asserting. And this kind of facile debating trick of like, well, I know what you're against, but you're never for anything. We pushed ourselves to really look at that question. And we saw what was happening in Argentina from afar and then went down there and spent almost an entire year of 2002 living in the streets with folks, sleeping on the floors of those factories when they were fighting off police, you know, coming to evict them, when they were gathering support in the community, and when they were building a genuine grassroots democratic economy in their communities, which continues to inspire to this day. Sort of coincidentally, I ended up co-founding an important organization called The Working World, which some of your members may know of, with Brendan Martin, who literally came to see the film at its New York premiere in a film forum in the village in 2004 and cornered me afterwards and said, I want to start a democratically administered capital fund for worker-owned cooperatives. And I've been looking for a place to sort of pilot this idea. And I've seen it in your movie. And I want you to go down to Argentina with me and introduce me around. And and I I thought he was a bit bonkers initially. But we ended up funding the working world, which has become a very important network in the United States, which is now decentralizing the capital that we have raised in what we call the Seed Commons Network, where regional hubs, and I know that you're familiar with some of this, of worker co-ops, mostly in communities of color, in Black communities, and in economically marginalized regions, are seizing the means of production and organizing democratically. And there is a straight line from some of the activism in Argentina to some of the energy in the U.S. worker co-op movement today. It's been a blessing for me to be part of it as a storyteller and someone who listens carefully to innovations in the social movement space and tries to create narratives and frames around them that can break through to the mainstream and spread some of these ideas much further and wider. 
deep, deep gratitude for that role in the movement. And we just had Cooperation Richmond on our podcast. So oh, amazing. They're, they're heroes. Yes. Yeah. And, and the Force for Good Fund as well as a member. And so right. we love the working world. And this, this piece around elevating examples of cooperativism, I think is a part of the messaging now with your other short films that the one that just came out and the one that's coming out now. And I really appreciate you sharing some of the historical backdrop as well, especially given, you know, we just a couple weeks ago lost David Graeber, who's done so much work around raising awareness around debt. I really recommend yes. the listeners check that out as well. So take us there now in terms of your work as a storyteller. Could you share a little bit the bridge to message from the future with AOC, how that came to be? And then we'll go into the next message from the future. Absolutely. The second feature documentary that I made, most of my early career was in television. I started as a local news reporter in Toronto, where I was born. I ended up hosting a music show on Canadian television that was uh, syndicated in many countries in the world, a show called The New Music, where I got to interview a lot of my musical heroes. Eventually, I ended up, as I mentioned, hosting a political talk show on Canadian public television, and then started making documentary films. My second feature film was This Changes Everything, which was a companion project to Naomi Klein's magnus opus on climate and capitalism of the same name, a really important book in my life. And I think in terms of her extraordinary foresight as a thinker, many of the things that she wrote about in 2015 seemed far-fetched, and now they seem quite commonplace. And in the wake of This Changes Everything, we ended up launching a political project called The Leap Manifesto, which kind of sprang out of the engagement campaign for the documentary film. And The Leap Manifesto was a 15-point political document that was born of a big social movement collaboration from a huge range of different issue areas and social movement and indigenous leaders and others in migrant justice and housing justice and anti-poverty, trade unions and environmentalists all came together around this plan to get Canada off of fossil fuels in a hurry in a way that systematically attacked the other great crises of our time, white supremacy, economic inequality, and the climate crisis. And this sort of holistic vision was really a kind of Green New Deal 1.0 in that it said, we don't have time anymore to take these crises on one at a time. They are linked in that the source of our crises intersect and the solutions have to intersect too. And it requires a big coming together of social movements across all of our silos. And the systems of power in all of our countries have been very good at keeping us in our issue boxes and many times fighting each other for resources, from philanthropy, for attention in the public sphere. And so there needs to be a movement of movements. We've always known this. And now the pandemic and the climate crisis and the crisis of racism and white supremacy are all shoving us into the one big box where we recognize none of there can't be any competition among which crisis needs to be dealt with first. They're all linked in the economic and supremacist logic of our time, and they need intersecting solutions. And so this recognition that for us in Canada was embodied in, in this political document, the Leap Manifesto, for me personally, when I read the first draft of the text of the manifesto, which uh, Naomi wrote with a huge amount of collaboration and negotiation from many other people in track changes in a Word document in 2015. When I read the first draft, I just had a big, massive click moment in myself. And I was like, 
this thing, this holistic, pulling it all together, connecting the dots, political vision, this is it for me. This is what I want to give the rest of my life to. I don't think I'll ever see anything as holistic and important, urgent and deeply necessary as this. And so I kind of transitioned and I recognized it afterwards from being a journalist, an engaged journalist, obviously a, a movement journalist, but a journalist with access to the mainstream to a full-time activist. And we ended up founding an organization called The Leap, which has been my full-time job, my 24-7 job for the last five years. And The Leap is an organization which exists to be the connective tissue wherever possible among movements and solutions to the epic crises that we face. And so using my storytelling skills that I'd evolved over a few decades in journalism, I've been working in much smaller formats, you know, more online video. And I think there's a generation of organizational videos and explainer videos. They've been some very innovative stuff. And there's a lot of stuff that feels pretty utilitarian. Videos are a really good campaigning tool and they can get people to a rally or to a virtual event effectively, but they can also be used in deeper ways. And we've been exploring some of those at the leap as we've been doing short two-minute videos, animated videos that illustrate different elements of the Green New Deal. We've done one on Green New Deal and housing. We've done one on the connection between the climate crisis and migration. We did an explainer on sort of what is the Green New Deal in the first place. And we've also ventured into longer format short films. So Message from the Future with AOC was this extraordinary project that came around a little over a year ago in the spring of 2019 when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was just exploding onto the national and international stage and the Sunrise Movement had occupied Pelosi's office and introduced the idea of the Green New Deal a wartime level public investment in shifting the very basis of the economy, creating millions of good unionized jobs as we get off of fossil fuels and center the needs of those people who have been most excluded from contemporary capitalism through the lens of white supremacy, community overwhelmingly indigenous, black, and communities of color. And the Green New Deal was this exciting breath of fresh air as a political idea, as a movement-based demand that suddenly broke through into the mainstream, that scared the crap out of the right on some level. And I think Trump's insistent repetition of the Green New Deal has actually been a benefit overall because it's introduced what are, in fact, quite common sense ideas given that everybody knows we're living through epic crises and that huge change is needed. It's kind of amplified this phrase. Of course, it's turned into, you know, it's been used by the right as a smear, but it's also popularized the lens. And like the Leap Manifesto five years ago, I think the more the Green New Deal idea is around, the less radical and more common sense it seems. So we had this extraordinary political moment where we were feeling really hopeful There was a lot of energy, not just around Bernie Sanders, but around Elizabeth Warren and other progressive candidates in the Democratic primary. And we could sort of see this clear path, a not very likely path, (laughs) but a possible path to a U.S. president coming to power who was actually connected to demands coming from the grassroots and was prepared to embrace change on the level that is screamingly necessary in existential terms, both on racial justice, economic justice, and climate justice. And there was an article by Kate Aronoff that appeared in The Intercept, where with her editor, Ryan Grimm, they conceived of this sort of letter from the future, a postcard from the future, where they looked, there was a character that was looking back from 20 years in the future at how we won these epic political struggles and the kind of beautiful world that could be built on that basis. And that really seized our imagination. Naomi and I read that with great excitement. 
And Naomi had become friends with the revolutionary genius artist Molly Crabapple, whose politics are incendiary and whose art is life-changing. And we started talking excitedly about whether we could use this frame of a message from the future, a postcard from the near future, as a way of telling a story that grounds us in the world we're fighting for, that breathes life into the political demands and policy speak, and actually literally paints a picture of the future that we deserve and that so many of us give our lives to fighting for. It is a hopeful vision. It is utopian in some ways. That doesn't mean we think it's likely. And I think now is a deeply depressing and bleak political moment. The US presidential election in the wake of the first presidential debate, it's existential nausea on steroids, you know, looking at the US political situation right now and around the world with the pandemic. I think, you know, Wiley Coyote is sort of suspended over the canyon in the global economy. And it, it hasn't plummeted yet for reasons that we could talk about, but it feels like it's going to. So it's not a moment when hope and utopia seems proximate or likely, but that doesn't mean that there isn't utility in breathing life into a vision of what we're fighting for and reminding people why we fight, reminding people what there is to be gained and reminding people specifically what a justice-based world could look like because we have no lack of apocalyptic narratives in our culture and in our life. Hollywood can't stop imagining the most disastrous future, right? So we're all really embedded in these really scary versions of the future. And now we're living one. We're living a dystopian present with fear and death and disease on every side and catastrophic fires. And I mean, I'm living in British Columbia at the moment. And as we speak, the sky is blanketed with smoke from wildfires that have disappeared from the front pages and the lead items in newscasts, but have not disappeared from the atmosphere here, hundreds and hundreds of miles from where the fires actually are. So we're surrounded by terror in this moment. And so it's a really challenging moment to talk about hope and to allow ourselves to dwell in hope. But I believe passionately that it has strategic utility, that actually the antidote to despair is giving ourselves and our creative energy to sketching the future that we're fighting for, because it helps us stay oriented, it helps us stay in the fight, and it helps us remember that things don't have to be this way. We live in countries with immense wealth, and there is immense opportunity, and even opportunities created by the pandemic and by this moment of crisis, where big change is in the air, and we need to stay focused on what that looks like and why we fight. Well, and also just to name that it, it is a white supremacy culture norm to think in absolutes and to think it either has to be hope or apocalypse. There's a big gradient between those two. And, and how do we get from one to the other? Exactly. And that's the spectrum. So I really encourage people to watch Message from the Future with AOC. It made me cry. And I... Um, <laughs> me too, many times, but maybe... <laughs> maybe different, maybe different, different uh, colors of tears <laughs> over there. And so this new film, do you want to share anything with, with listeners about it? Or you want people to just watch it? And how, how can, you know, how should we bring people into this? Because I know it's launching and it's a very exciting launch with all these partners. Tell us a little bit about that. Message from the Future with AOC hit a nerve and I think is probably the most successful film or video that I've ever been connected with. It was seen more than 12 million times across platforms and we know around the world. 
it seemed that this vision, a path to change, a theory of change embedded in the film, in that case, a kind of vision of new electoral figures, insurgent electoral figures like AOC responding to, channeling, and being accountable to social movement forces that help get them elected, driving a brand new kind of politics and a vision of big change on behalf of the many, not the few. It really just lit people up. And your response, the intense emotional response, was one that we heard universally, that it really touched people. And it's almost like letting ourselves hope for eight or nine minutes opens up a lot of the grief, the climate grief, the grief about all of the crises that we're facing, that we're holding back all the time. And now the grief and loss and fear of the pandemic, when we give ourselves permission to dwell in hope for a moment in time, it seems to open up all of this deep emotional stuff, which I think is really necessary. And I think there's a lot of unprocessed grief floating in the air these days. And maybe hope is not like a thing that drives it away or necessarily an antidote to it. Maybe it is an opening for us to feel all the feelings and to channel some of that grief and fear into action. And so I see hope as a transformative force, maybe a catalyst, you know, rather than an opioid, or as Marx called it, an opiate for the masses. So I think that the AOC film, it surprised us how deeply people connected with it. And so from the beginning, and it's sort of surprise success as it traveled around, we wondered whether we were onto something as a kind of form. But we all went back to the other things we were doing and didn't, you know, didn't think like, you know, franchise. <laughs> we don't really think like business people. So it wasn't until March when the pandemic and lockdown were really starting to bite that Naomi and Molly and I got on the phone to say, is this a moment where we would kind of have the chutzpah to assert another positive vision? Because we saw already in the early days of the pandemic how much it was teaching us, how slowing down, being forced to slow down was giving people time to think and was also revealing all of the people who weren't allowed to slow down who were being driven into ever further danger and industry and extra work and overtime as they delivered food and picked food and packed food and the Amazon warehouse workers and the migrant farmers in the fields in clouds of smoke in a pandemic, keeping people alive by putting their own lives at risk. All of that suddenly sort of became clear. The invisible essential economy became visible for so many people. And it seemed like an opening. And then suddenly trillions of dollars are being spent in Trump's America. They're mostly 99% going in exactly the wrong direction. And yet in countries around the world, like in my country in Canada, marginally better, but still the signal that there were vast public resources available to keep the global economy afloat. After decades of being told that the cupboard is bare under neoliberal austerity thinking, suddenly there was endless money. And so politically, it just seemed like a moment to say, on so many levels, the pandemic is telling us what we already know we need to do. Do we dare to build another message from the future, this time mapping the path out of pandemic and to a saner, safer future for everyone? And this time it felt like the solution on offer wasn't as connected to the electoral sphere. And this time we wanted to do something that wasn't as parochial in America and was truly global. And so we started to cook up a sequel. I think it was about lessons from the pandemic, what it taught us and how we listened. And it was about finding a way to speak 
more globally, which immediately to me, I thought multiple narrators. Actually, instead of zeroing in on one transformative figure like AOC, we've got to hear a chorus. And so I started thinking with my filmmaker brain, you know, who would be the voices that would really lift this thing? And then the uprising started to happen and we saw the streets filled with people and we saw white supremacy put square in the center of the global discourse. It was an immense relief. It was extremely exciting. It's also filled with the terror of the fact that people continue to be murdered, even as people start to stand up across societies, that there's now a contest going on that's in the foreground. That was when we connected with Opal Tometi, one of the three co-founders of Black Lives Matter. And Opal, from her position inside an extremely high stakes, you know, series of intersecting leaderships around the Black Lives movements globally, answered the call and said, yes, I want to write this with you. And so Opal and I co-wrote the script and Opal agreed to be one of the narrators. And then I just went dream team. Who are the greatest actor activists that I can think of that we might have a route to? And Emma Thompson and Gael Garcia Bernal both said yes instantly. It was like, yes. I, 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 like, I've been doing this for a long time and I've rarely felt the heart leap to the project in the way that they both did. And then we rounded it out with one of our great heroes, Nemo Bassi, who's a poet and a Nigerian climate justice warrior for many, many decades. And so we had our four narrators and we, Opal and I wrote the script and we somehow in the last six months brought to life Message from the Future 2, The Years of Repair. And the years of repair is one of those great Naomi Klein phrases that seems to kind of snap a whole bunch of ideas that are floating out there into sharp focus just when you say it. So we have so much to repair. We have to repair our economy. We have to repair our relationships to each other, to the earth, our relationship to history. Reparations is a word that comes from repair. And these next years, if we did them right, as a global community would be years of repair. And that's what we describe in the film. There's so many pieces of the film that I love and I'm not gonna give it away because everyone has to go and watch <laughs> it. But one that I, you know, and I love that it, it's worker cooperatives are featured prominently. Definitely. And global uprisings and, and really what you named around looking outside of just political Green New Deal mechanism for change. And that was really one of the takeaways for me was this grappling with a discourse which I've felt for many, many years around the dilemma between iterative changes versus substantial mm -hmm. overhaul of the system. And so anything you'd want to say on that, but I, that, that was one theme that I thought was addressed in, in your film that was beautifully done. I mean, as essentially a storyteller of social movements, it's a weird title and I'm granting it to myself. So I would challenge myself even as I claim it. It's a thread through my working life of being close to people who are in the tireless, exhausting and, and unending work of activism and trying to bring the clarion calls of those constituencies to an audience that isn't involved in activist work. And from my place in the mainstream, you know, in the 90s when I was covering electoral politics in Canada for the youth audience on the music channel, we would try to find young activists, Indigenous activists and anti-poverty activists and student activists and try to elevate their voices and their demands, their concerns and their stories. And so this project is in many ways, I, I think probably like the best love letter to movements that I've ever had one hand on the pen 
before. And when we finished the script and went into the production part, we started approaching partners across a huge span of social movements to see if they saw themselves reflected in it, if they saw their concerns reflected, if the politics were aligned, and if they thought it could be a useful organizing tool. And to our astonishment and delight, we had yeses again from some of those powerful movements in this political moment. So we're launching it with launch partners that include like the Movement for Black Lives and the legendary group out of Florida, the Dream Defenders, as well as La Via Campesina the global peasant farmer networks with a huge trade union federation, a global union federation in public services international, which represents like 700 affiliate unions, some 30 million plus workers, as well as Global Nurses United and the Sunrise Movement and the NDN Collective, which was behind those extraordinary protests at Mount Rushmore when Trump visited there recently. And I know that you are connected to those folks on this show and they are a really inspiring frontline group that is both providing one of the biggest COVID relief programs in Indian country at the same time as they're making the transformative forward-facing political demand of land back. The two words that really summon a vision of justice for stolen land and people having lands returned. And what that looks like and how indigenous jurisdiction intersects with other levels of government is like a conversation we urgently need to start having. So Land Back is a great example of one of the demands that's in the film. In the future that we envision, there's a Land Back program that starts the epic work of returning lands to indigenous jurisdiction in the same way that the uprisings around racial justice are a kind of turning point in the future vision in the film when movements start coming together. And it's not just protests and marches in the film that achieve big change. They're strikes. They're workers disrupting the flow of capitalism in order to force change. And it's significant that they're not just symbolic marches, but they're an economic tool that really forces the economic powers to come to grips with a transformative political vision as part of the theory of change. The movie embeds many social movement demands and just imagines a future where it's not just that prison abolition is a thing. You know, Molly wrote on the walls of the prison in the first scene of the film, Department of Abolition, as if the idea is just imagining when these ideas are so embedded in the mainstream. You know, marginal ideas that were fighting for political oxygen just a few months ago have moved into the mainstream of political discussion in the United States and elsewhere. And so all we do is imagine the trajectory continuing and advancing a couple of decades into the future where those things are not just common sense, they've actually been implemented. So we have a Truth and Reparations Commission rather than what we had in Canada, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So Canada's grappling with the injustices done to Indigenous peoples on the lands where we live and work is framed as this reconciliation project. And many Indigenous leaders have been saying in my country of Canada, you can't have reconciliation before you have justice. And we still don't have water to drink in a huge number of Indigenous communities. And we still are dying in disproportionate numbers from the pandemic. And there's still racist violence against us in the prisons and in the hospitals and in the criminal justice system and in society. And so how can you speak about reconciliation? So the truth and reconciliation model, which also had relatively unsatisfying results in South Africa, which is maybe the most famous TRC, because it didn't deal with the economic dimensions of apartheid, and it pretended that you could fast forward to reconciliation before you'd had justice. So in the film, we imagine a truth and reparations commission, where it's not just about touchy-feely holding hands and feeling better about each other. It's about repair. It's about returning what was stolen. It's about reparations. And so the movement demands are interwoven through the film. 
not in a, like a policy list, but in an imaginative journey through a story where these are things that just exist in the landscape as Molly brings them to life under her brush. And I think that was very important for us. And I think like there are little signs that we were on the right tip. So when Molly did an illustration of the huge uprisings of the viral rent strike and then the essential workers strike, which we imagine as a global moment of reckoning that brings the global economy to a halt, this time blockaded by workers and forces big change. Molly put a protester in the front of the demonstration with a big sandwich board sign that said people over profits, right? Which is a great slogan, been around forever. And then when Public Services International came on board as a partner, a launch partner, we asked them what campaign they wanted to feature, and it's their People Over Profit platform. So these ideas have been around for a long time. The film brings them together much more elegantly and quickly than I've done in this conversation. <laughs> but they do really echo and reflect back a holistic vision of what social movements are calling for and bring it to life in a way that moves. I think it moves through time, it moves through the landscape of the imagination, it moves through our hearts. I really hope that it will move people and be of use as an organizing tool. What you just said even harkens to AOC, which paves the way for really this notion that until we imagine it, until we imagine it collectively, that's the starting point. And I think particularly with something like reparations, many communities fall to the kind of scarcity framework of reparations impossible. It would never work. We don't have enough resources to even conceive of that. And the imaginative place of what would it look like if it actually were possible and we actually took action. I think that's so true. And I think the framework of scarcity has pitted us against each other for so long. You know, as someone who had an awakening around the climate crisis fairly late in my life, you know, only like 10, 15 years ago, I was slow to see that the climate crisis is not the overarching crisis. It's the expression of all the others. And so we can't compete for whose crisis gets dealt with first, like I was saying before. That's scarcity mindset talking. It's actually imagining a world that would respond to all of the crises, that we see all of our different places in it. It's possible to center multiple concerns and constituencies. And I feel like we have to now. We've left it too late on all fronts. And reparations and land back is a great example. Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, when I first heard the phrase land back, I was like, so I come from Toronto. It's a city of like 5 million people now. So we're just going to give it back? How does that even work? And that's exactly, as you say, that's scarcity thinking. But we have to have those conversations. We have to actually talk about what it looks like. We have to talk about a rebalancing. People here defund the police. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. You mean there's going to be no police tomorrow? No, that's not what the campaigners who have popularized that phrase are talking about. They're talking about fully funding all of the things that are needed for people to live dignified lives, education, healthcare, having economic dignity, and addressing white supremacy and racism in the way that poverty is criminalized. Now imagine a city or a state or a country where the basics are truly taken care of, where nobody goes bankrupt because they don't have health care, where schools in Black neighborhoods are just as good as schools in every other neighborhood, where people have access to decent work and unionized salaries. The majority. Now, how much policing do we need? Now we're having a different kind of conversation. And so I think that in a way, the utility of these utopian visions is to start a conversation about what a world really looks like when we win some of these demands. And then we can work our way backward to the present and say, okay, that's where we're headed. What do we need to get there? 
because just the slogan, land back or defund the police, requires a whole huge amount of education and imagination and organizing and campaigning so that people really get what it means and don't have these scarcity reactions like you so well described. And I think art can be a helpful tool, not a solution, you know, not a shortcut. There's no shortcuts in organizing and in, and in moving for social change, but it can be a tool to unlock parts of us that are not scared, that are not operating out of scarcity, that are expansive and are operating out of generosity. I wish we had more time. <laughs> we could talk about this, and I hope this is just the beginning of many conversations. And in the spirit of that, I really appreciate the way you portrayed hope. And I think it was in a more nuanced and more complex way than sometimes hope is portrayed in mainstream media. And in the spirit of further conversations, what is your hope that people will remember after watching the video and in conversations that they bring these themes forward into their life? What is your hope that they will remember? What are maybe lessons from your learning from activist communities that people should keep in mind as they engage in these conversations? You know, what I've learned, you know, even from the amazing partners that we have helping us launch the film, V-Day and One Billion Rising, the legendary feminist movements, global movements have, have just joined. And they're such incredible teachers too. That joy and celebration, that art and imagination, uh, that community and the strength of human connecting is the backbone of struggle. Struggle looks thankless from the outside and often the work is. But it is the joy of our human connections across time and space, across the bloody internet even, that anchors us in the struggle. And that struggle has to address all parts of us. We're not policy pamphlets. We're not political manifestos. We're human beings in all of our flawed glory. And activism needs to and can touch all parts of us. And I think that, you know, for me, even just as someone who's worked in journalism, which is a pretty desiccated space a lot of the time, it's been really moving to be in touch with, I don't want to get too flaky here because I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm a bit of an existentialist myself, but I, I feel like there's an opening when we start talking about movements coming together, when we start imagining the futures we're fighting for, we start breathing life into them in artistic visions. And they touch a part of us that isn't in the brain and isn't in such a, like the rational space. The rational part right now is pretty bad. If you look rationally at our prospects for engaging with all of the intersecting crises we face, we're not doing well. It doesn't look particularly hopeful. And so hope is not a stubborn insistence. Hope is a tool. Hope is a strategy. Hope is a place to refuel and regroup and reground. And that's what these projects have been for me. They've been openings to a different mode. And I think that the pandemic has opened that a lot for people. One of the first lines that really lands in the film is that the, the future was born in the terror and tenderness of the pandemic. And we have been feeling both of those things. And the tenderness is where there's a beautiful future that could still be built. Even if the future is really hard and apocalyptic, the tenderness is where we're going to build community and resilience and connection. What kind of people do we want to be? Even in a nightmarish future, what kind of people do we want to be? What kind of community do we want to build? Because there's a huge amount of hope and possibility in that, even though we can't control a lot of the external factors that are kind of baked in. So I feel like this kind of work restores a sense of agency 
And I think that's what people feel when they connect with the film and that these little short films are helpful for them. They feel like, oh yeah, there is a point, right? There is this thing which is within reach. And okay, I don't think it's likely, but it's there. And that gives me a huge amount of strength. And honestly, that is what really what we need. And just going back to the first section of that comment there where you talked about joy being what fuels movements, I just want to honor that image in the film of actually bringing that joy and celebration outside and inside more than human world as well. Yes. We're not, it's not only humans that need joy, it's more than humans too that, Absolutely. that need that. So in closing here, our listeners will be very curious to know how they can support the amazing list of organizations that are launching this film, Indian Collective, La Via Campesina, Movement for Black Lives. Can you give our listeners just a few ways that they can be of support in that kind of larger broadened movement lens? Absolutely. Theleap.org is the home for us of the film launch and the project. And if you go to theleap.org, you'll find your way to the film page and all of our partners and the campaigns that they're featuring are listed there. And that, you know, is a hub to an exploration of all kinds of activism going on and specific campaigns, whether land back, whether people over profits platform and all of the different organizations. And yeah, it's even lovely just to see these groups on a page together. (laughs) We don't pretend that it's like a working coalition. It's sort of a paper coalition that they've supported the launch and they've committed to doing webinars and using the film as an organizing tool. It's not like this is the movement of movements we need. It's all arrived and this little nine-minute film is delivering it. But it is a story about the forces that need to come together. And it is really a great little hub for some of these intersecting forces that have come together around this vision, who are all doing life and death inspiring work in all of the different issue areas. Well, thank you so much, Avi, and big gratitude to your whole household as well. Because <laughs> I know it really it shows up in your work as being a whole family affair. And It's a family affair around here, totally. <laughs> That's, that is definitely our theme song. Toma and Naomi and Smoke Your Dog and... <laughs> Thank you for taking the time. This was really, really impactful for me to see the larger context behind the film. And I can't wait for our listeners to watch it as well and use it as an organizing tool in their own communities. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.